Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that to keep his energy up for podcasting two Daredevils and one Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a week, he's built a basement blood transfer room. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. You still have scars to remember me by, I hope. The Daredevil podcast by fantastic geek for episode 209 seven minutes in heaven it's brought to you by panama paper trail holdings we'll help you get your contraband business off the ground so you can finance your lady friend's italian villa order in the court one more outburst and i'll hold you in contempt let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due Easily, Matt, the longest ever teaser act on this show. Uh, probably the longest time-wise tease ever on Marvel television in over 100 uh, serial episodes. We begin in flashback, the police paddy wagon dropping off inmate 55467. You might know him better as Fisk, comma, Wilson. Hey, Pete, he's that guy from the first episode. He is. Joking aside, though, I love that it takes a second to adjust to the fact that he's being brought in, Fisk is. It's for the first time. We're in flashback. We are in what I can only assume are are, are the hours or days or at most weeks after the first season ended. Certainly the kind of uh, were moments story-wise after his apprehension. Um and uh, there's just this contempt that he shows uh, for for the very bin in which his clothing is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he's made to strip, uh, we see that he's a man not humbled, just one that's temporarily inconvenienced. I also appreciate, and I don't mean this in a, in a saucy way either, I appreciate that they don't... Um, actually make us see him strip again i'm not saying ah i can't handle the notion of flesh or whatever just we don't need to see him lowered to this way he can act that way and and we can still keep things moving along he's physically scarred from his encounter with daredevil uh there's an orange jumpsuited uh bespectacled man there sweeping who of course will come back we still don't have a name on that character but we'll get to him eventually but the bald cop there is gleeful as fisk is made to uh put his effects in the bin there including his father's cufflinks and newbies wear white as he's paraded down the hallway there shades of uh private pile matt i i felt that um D'Onofrio, Vincent D'Onofrio there was summoning a lot of that performance in this kind of, you know, there's some fear evident on Fisk's face as he's doing, even a little bit of uh, chin wobbliness. And then um, I didn't go back and compare it to the end of the season, but we did have a shot where he was um, sitting in the cell uh, admiring that white wall a la the rabbit in the snowstorm. I like that they don't oversell his moment looking at that mottled wall. Uh, it's also in this portion of the story where 
I was struck by how tall Vincent D'Onofrio is. Apparently, according to the internet, which I, uh, is, of course, infallible, apparently he's 6'4", which is a lot of height. And then you you look at the weight he's packed on yeah. for this role. That's a lot of – that's just a lot of weight. Um, I didn't think of him as that tall, you know, thinking to movies from like Jurassic World or, or of that sort. But he's just a massive guy. I don't know if they've then also put him in – in you know lift shoes to make that six four six six or whatever but there's just a there's a size to him that somehow i wasn't quite struck with uh last season perhaps because the character was always emotionally big and here he is emotionally humbled but welcome back vincent d'onofrio his lawyer mr donovan sits down with him and explains that he'd done everything he could but the case against him was bulletproof the process of the appeal is uh, coming along, but uh, given the magnitude of the charges, they were lucky to plead him out at all. The subject of Vanessa, his girlfriend, comes up. Uh, they have secured a percentage of his offshore holdings. Hopefully that doesn't get discovered in the Panama Papers. And uh, as it's been requested, and uh, though Vanessa wants to come to see him, um, he does not want that to happen, that she's safe where she is. She's got to stay there for the time being. And she'll have everything she needs. But um, that uh, the lawyer communicates to Fisk, he needs to understand that a good number of his assets were seized by the government and we're dealing with a finite amount here. The remaining capital is limited. There's the suggestion from mr donovan the lawyer that fisk just keep his head down stay right. out of trouble and next scene we see just that fisk is sitting in his cell uh minding his own business uh, then a fellow inmate in orange stops by to say that fisk is the man who has a shadow in the dark uh, fisk recognizes mr dutton who has a, a reputation that precedes him uh it he he runs the big box mr dutton does and uh, Fisk is planning on just sitting tight, though Dutton knows that men like Fisk love all thrones. Pete, I have to wonder if this episode is going to have prison be a game of, you know, thrones. I, was, I heard throne and I was like, all right, maybe we'll get to see some prison winemaking. <laughs> In the meantime, it's mealtime. Fisk is sitting all by himself uh, while elsewhere in the the, the cafeteria, uh, Dutton eats and is cackling, surrounded by his cronies. Uh, a younger man in glasses approaches Fisk. Uh, the man was a numbers guy. He's not a savage. He had that seven-figure salary. He had the house in the Hamptons. Don't we all? Um, Mortgage analyst, to which, Matt, I have named him Morty. <laughs> Uh, he does get named in a bit, although although not yet. Um, Fisk is told that Dutton runs about 80% of the contraband and pays off the guards too. This man, Morty, so named by Pete, uh, he's friends with the Valdez brothers. They're sitting over there yonder. yonder. The brothers have a mother. Does Fisk have a way in Pete? That's kind of where the... the, the this story, both both compact and feeling deep nonetheless... Uh, leaves us at this point in the story. You had to know that uh, it would come around. You know, the, the tale I was really kind of hoping for was a completely throughout this episode down on his luck Fisk. 
that's just not the choice they're going for here. Um, is this the most believable turn and and what takes place? I think we can acknowledge it's not. This is not the most believable world that they inhabit. So we allow the the willful suspension of disbelief here. Um, but you know, just given the way that that Dutton and his crew are are laughing, I, I love the one uh, the one guy and his crew kind of looks like Jesus, <laughs> who uh, he gets sacrificed later on. Um, but uh, we. The, the second meeting with uh, Mr. Donovan there, uh, why has he been called? Hey, take this name down. I need you to bolster this guy's legal retainer. And then there's this woman, Andrea Valdez. She needs her rent paid indefinitely. Uh, needs to be untraceable. But wait, I warned you, don't do this. You know, get it done, says over the glass with the phone down. So you know Fisk is adamant about this. And just like that, we're wearing orange in the hallway there, little legal pads in his hands, and the notes. The second time we see him in his cell there, uh, he's now got his uh, – Fisk has his own crew attending him, albeit a smaller one. And uh, Morty tells him that uh, Dutton and his men have not emerged from Block A, and instantly your your ears prick up like, wait, did they did they take him out already? But no, um, it, there's no way to get in. It's impenetrable for now. But the hey, the paper's got something interesting. Look at this front page. It's another trial of the century in the next century after the OJ trial in the New York Bulletin. Pete, it is it is such a turn of events that we spent all of last season despising Fisk. Now I think safe on your couch, admiring the acting in awe of the, the gravitas of the character, but he was of course the villain, uh, one who we, we did feel sympathetic for repeatedly though. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, we were glad to see him get his cup up and come up and send uh, daredevil reign supreme and all of that. But to see him start at the bottom so quickly and then to work his way up with, as you said, it's it's a new crew, but a small crew. The Valdez brothers, Stuart Finney, that's AKA Morty. Um, and, and we of course know that there's a certain tension here. I think that the length of this teaser act, I don't want to say it starts to wear on you, but this is where you're kind of aware that it's going on longer than usual. And that they're they're packing in a lot of story here. You can really start to feel the pace now that he and the Punisher are on a collision course that we know will result in their meeting. And some exposition here, Matt. Okay, uh, Frank has gunned down some Irish in a big way. Uh, Nesbit is is name checked. He was a problematic leader. The Dogs of Hell's uh, clubhouse was blown up. They've charged him with thirty seven counts of murder there's a rumor the cartel got meat hooks through their faces um so we're we're, we're you know backloading story um and looking over his notes here meticulous though they are um fisk mentions that if he's correct dutton didn't do business with the cartel and then there's a note here on the 22nd his lieutenant mentioned a deal with the Aryans, those delightful chaps, uh, to move product in the dog's territory, a hostile takeover. Um, so if Dutton is 
connected with the Irish and there was this heroin move gone, heroin deal gone south a while back. Uh, all of this adds to grist for the mill uh, for Fisk. And before you know it, Donovan, the lawyer, is visiting him again. And uh, what his client has asked him for is difficult. He's not worried about the legality but most of the funds are now depleted. Um, building up his protection crew wasn't cheap, and Fisk admits, nor should it be. But the cash is almost gone. He's going to do this, uh, which is to pay off one guard. And anything after this is going to dip into his reserves, into Vanessa's protection. But he's adamant he won't need anything after this. A guard they have spoken to... Um, you know, that's that's going to take care of business. Pete, on the heels of this this idea where the lawyer, does he even want to know what's being asked for? I love that we immediately cut to what had been the Fisk reveal, but first from a different angle in this right. episode, and then the exact same one. Uh, it, it's it's this type of thing could be shown in a in a variety of ways. Uh I'm thinking of the uh like, you know, lock stock and two smoking barrels kind of, you know, zip cut. You could show somebody whispering in the lawyer's ear and then the lawyer. Instead, it's just keep up. You've seen this episode. You've seen the episode before it. You can watch it anytime you want. You can watch this episode anytime you want. Keep up because we're just going to do the Fisk story. And then when it intersects with last week's story, last episode's story, we're going to show you the exact same shot to say now the two storylines are one. And of course, he sees that Frank got his message. The rest of the episode proper, Matt, begins with Matt Murdock face down on the floor of his apartment. And Electra is now taking the bowl of uh, homeopathic medicine and some toilet bowl cleaner <laughs> to, uh, to clean out a poison wound from the arrow. There's uh, whoa, whoa, Pete. That's that's a whole other TV universe. The arrow, yeah. Uh, he passes out from the pain, but comes to just enough to glimpse a gloved cleanup crew uh, come in, bleaching his carpet, mopping the floor, scrubbing, dumping buckets of blood down the sink, um, and then out of his uh his state there who's there oh it, they're gone it's okay um Electra is, is moving much better from having suffered a horrible cut to her abdomen uh so she might have a little bit of that uh that inhuman heel quick uh stuff happening there given how quickly she ran over to him um stick is uh name checked here because Matt uses the pronoun, where is he? Electra thinks that's what he means. No, he wants to know about the boy. It, Matt, has been taken care of. Pete, Matt plays something called the pronoun game, which for you for you future TV writers out there, you do the pronoun game when you want somebody to name the thing so it's clear for the audience. Uh, by the way, I like that, speaking of, of uh, in the teaser act, the... Uh, pedal faster, keep up the pace from last episode mentality of this episode, we don't get the direct explanation that he was poisoned. It's just 
remember it from last episode that there was a chance of him being poisoned and the the uh, various accoutrements from the ninja had poison on them. Ditto with how long has Matt passed out? Probably somewhere in that 12 to 24 hour recoup period that, uh, that uh, was uh, foretold about Electra by Stick. And back to this this death of the kid pete matt's all all guilt-ridden i have to say i don't think that most of us in the audience are on his same side here or, or on the same side as him rather uh Electra calls it self-defense and i think so do we given that it was a ninja with poison swords right. throwing stars and arrows there's the the code though the hero's code with so many of these types of stories he is anti-killing and she points out that even your precious court of law would uh would support this but he says that's not who he is and uh he would have brought his big brothers back upon them Electra also uh rather sarcastically notes what would we tell the police right. if we called them that that this boy who was killed was a member of an ancient order of ninjas who were digging a big hole in midtown Manhattan. Not saying, well, when you put it like that, or at least right. we, the audience, saying that. Um, and Matt accuses her. Again, I think that most of the audience, we understand the hero's code. We understand that, you know, which side of the line he's on. But him saying, but I thought you wanted to be good and now you weren't. Geez, splitting hairs here. The guy was going to kill you. Um, the, heck, the ninja was ready to kill them both. Um, and then, Pete, we get some... Just as we're like, yeah, Team Electra, boo, Daredevil. Uh, Electra then tells a story from, from Pete when she was a young woman. And that's uh, sufficiently uh, uh, able to creep the audience out. The, the nut in this scene is the story of taking her first life when she was 12 years old. She did of her own volition that she wasn't saving anybody. Um, she wasn't even protecting herself. She needed to know if she could. And given how Matt's abilities allow him to know that her adrenaline had spiked, that she at least seems to enjoy killing uh when she killed this uh young errant ninja um you know really reinforces that fact and and makes her a truly complex character but as she points out to matt the hand is very real the battle has begun and we need to make sure that uh these ninjas and and this organization needs to be stopped she's going to do it at any cost, Daredevil is going to do it his way. This scene is in many ways about Electra showing her cruel side. And if that story of uh, taking a life simply to see if she could at age 12 wasn't cruel, cruel too is Electra admitting that she loved, past tense Pete, loved Matt. He says that uh, they corrupt each other. Yeah. And that's when I think this interplay with the, the the three parties in the room, uh, in a certain sense, Electra, Matt, and the audience, that's when the audience says, that is difficult to argue with. I must agree that they do corrupt each other. And uh, it's also said, Pete, that the hand will decimate New York and Matt must fight this battle alone. Is she leaving? Really? I was um, I was surprised with the, 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 the vigor with which the show suggested she was leaving for good. 
I don't think it's for good, but it's goodbye for now. And I mean, let's be honest, we will uh, likely see her again. Listen, I will I will not spoil anything. Um, it, it, it was not sold, I think, as as a definitive goodbye or even goodbye for the season. Um, but from there, we head back to the big box, Matt, where uh, we were playing around with time, obviously, because we had left Fisk meeting uh, the Punisher. And now, wait, they're still meeting. But, you know, we, we'd kind of flashed around to go back to Matt's apartment and, you know, the, the time that he was recovering um, with the but, flourish of the editor's knife, it's all possible. Pete. Yes, but uh, this opportunity that uh, Fisk notes, the circumstances are unfortunate with a loss, but now we have it, and he's glad he has this chance to meet him. Uh, great use of the no excessive noise sign in the uh, in the weight pile there, Matt, because um, we know that Fisk will talk like this. But uh, he had followed Castle's case as much as he could in this cage. Don't talk about my family. And Fisk keeps coming with these overtures of, you know, I consider it a, a tragedy. And Castle doesn't want his BS 99 sympathy. He doesn't buy it. Uh, but Fisk has crossed paths with his attorneys before. He's uh, not a huge fan and uh, that they were pushing you toward a sentence in a mental health facility after everything you've been through. That was the travesty. And now he wants to offer him closure. It's so interesting in this scene how not only the writing, but I think the acting and perhaps most importantly, the camera choice and the editing camera placement choices and editing make Frank seem suddenly out of place in this story. Uh, he's been with us for so long in this season, and uh, I, I haven't counted it up, but I think it was the end of the third episode when Fisk was finally revealed in the first season. Um, yes. So we're, point being, we're at a roughly similar episode count here, but it's like Fisk feels so familiar, and Frank, it, it, Frank just seems like he's sticking out, which, of course is how he feels and how Fisk wants him to feel. And then, as you mentioned, Pete, this notion of needing closure, not treatment. Uh, Fisk says that he needs uh, the big man here in the big box to be addressed. Uh, and it turns out that Dutton may have had a hand in the shootout in the park that took Frank's family. And I love that when Fisk says Dutton, he breaks the hoarse voice that he has, adds that extra bit of volume and his voice echoes off the stone walls this all but surely a uh, a, a real shooting location and if not your your sound editor is doing his or her job by adding the echo there proof though that d'onofrio can use the space he has his voice fill that entire room for yeah. this this villain of 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 both of their existences at least in the short term but he's not Irish. He's not cartel. He's not a biker. Fisk says he's something else entirely. But before he says this man definitely had a hand in the massacre in the park. And then it's I believe he facilitated the deal. I and and even later with Dutton and, and his admission, I felt we weren't consistent in how we were handing this off to Frank. And, and he's like, yeah, oh, 
somebody with the I'll kill him. It he just seems at least the character. It's not Bernthal's acting. And again, I get it, comic book world and, and where we're moving it, but he just seems like, oh, oh, you know somebody that would, I'll kill him. How do I get, when? When's this happen? Pete, I'll disagree. I, I think back to the psychiatrist's uh, statement on the stand in the last episode, this, this state of constant panic and terror and, uh, you know, kind of caveman, alpha male, protect the cave uh, state that Frank is in. I think makes him predisposed to when you hear that the great conspiracy leads all the way to your, your neighbor's doorstep. I think that that fits his broken uh, worldview that places him and his, his legitimate tragedy, but it places his tragedy at the center of his world. Well, and you can't have it both ways though, because he he's saying, don't give me your sympathy. And then, you know, he, he, He's asking what's in it for you, and and then he jumps at the opportunity. So I, I get the testimony and certainly um, understand the duress that somebody would suffer under that extreme emotional disturbance. But in terms of connecting the dots and giving exposition and everything, it just felt a, a little out of the character. Like – you know, to ask him what's in it for you, but to 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 jump the the minute a name is is mentioned just seemed a little less unbelievable. Well, nonetheless, Frank, of course, says he doesn't help crappy has been bosses. Although <laughs> I think Pete, it's time to one oh one. Boom, there you go. He also doesn't do arrangements. He won't be Fisk's trigger man through all of this show from Frank. We also have a great show of power from D'Onofrio with his acting. D'Onofrio keeps his hands behind his back while Fisk is talking to Frank. D to me, there's just this basic rule of the jungle show of power that, that Fisk and D'Onofrio are showing with his hands behind his back. He has nothing to fear, no underbelly to cover. He knows who's the kingpin in this situation. Um, and I just thought that in terms of acting and in terms of physical body language, it just spoke volumes. We also later on get the admission from the character himself, but prison has clearly impacted Fisk, even in his, uh, choice of words twice in this episode, he punctuates something with the phrase, something like that. And here's a guy who was so dignified, nay, regal at times in, in the, the distance he held. I mean, granted, he is the he is the 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 crying, uh, you know, uh, villain, uh, you know, inside. Uh, it, there, there's a lot like, uh, you know, you, you think of the 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 crying clown in in opera. I, I see a lot of Polieri in um, in Fisk's character in the first season, and here he's he's been so impacted by this. When initially my thoughts as a viewer was that he was going to be beaten down in prison, only because it it just seems too easy the way to go to turn him into the guy running the thing and obviously enter Frank and that's what he's going to use him for. But uh, I found it very interesting the way he his dialogue uh, was written. For what is left in this scene, it's all about 
it's all about the hook and the bait and catching catching frank here fisk notes that castle's war on the city got him nowhere and that fisk is offering what no one else can but if he doesn't want to help fine enjoy prison and just as fisk is walking away that's when frank is hooked uh fisk can get frank to cell block a and give him a seven minute window when should it be done Beat narrative expediency today. Yep. Frank spells out that once the Kingpin and the Punisher have done this thing, they're done. And of course, the weapon of choice, a simple prison shiv, but he thinks the Frank will make do. It's the best he can offer. Um, we head from there back to uh, Foggy, uh, showing up at Matt's apartment here. Uh, noting the wounds on the blind man and, uh, oh, you're, you're hurt. What, what makes you say that there's instantly this, this tension between the two of them. Um, it's not a good time to talk. It never is, but, uh, foggy comes down to brass tacks and he's thinking of shuttering the office for a few weeks. It's drastic with everything that's happened, but they need to think their priorities through how they're going to proceed with Nelson and Murdoch. And Matt asks, is this the firm or is the friendship? And though they went hand to hand together for a while, uh, things certainly have devolved. And Matt gives Foggy everything he wants here, which Foggy doesn't really want. And we know it's Matt protecting him. That's why it makes it both an interesting and a difficult scene to watch. When this scene started... My attitude was, oh, hey, is this still a story? I'm sorry. I was so brought into the the Fisk and Castle uh, stuff that it was like, oh, yeah, I guess Foggy and Matt are fighting or whatever. The gas in the tank, though, about Foggy trying to do this drastic um, attention-getting move, and I mean that in the best sense, but he's trying to flag down his wayward friend. Let's shutter the office for a few weeks and figure everything out. But um, I would disagree, Pete, that Matt is trying to protect Foggy. I think that Matt has been pulled so much into this world of his vigilante side. And, of course, you know, Foggy wants his friend, not the vigilante, and Matt's saying that they're one and the same. But, but Matt has been pulled so down in the need to be Daredevil that I think he's ready to let all this go, let the law practice go, let Foggy go, let Karen go. I believe in his conviction here now obviously you don't need to be uh old spoiler pete there you can remain spoiler free and still figure out they're not ending this season let alone they're probably not even ending next episode as you know a a a shuttered legal practice and never ever friends again but i think that in that moment matt is just saying pete there's ninjas with poison arrows coming after him and the people he cares about it really is best for him to take care of it with his special powers and let Foggy and Karen go on ad infinitum some other direction. But Matt, Karen is late to the offices of Nelson and uh, she hadn't set her alarm, but it's been quite a week. And, uh, oh, wait, what are you what are you packing up there? The castle files? Uh, hey, Karen, I'm going to distract you with food. Yeah, Foggy, food. Um but uh, she wants to show him something. And uh, he brings up a long lunch again, and we can talk about what's going on. No, no, remember that John Doe? Well, whose house did you break into now? He wants to know. Um, no, I just, uh, I used press passes and NYPD files, and he uh, is shown the pics 
that uh, Karen has uncovered of a body of a Caucasian uh, bald man laying there. Uh, and then another uh, picture seemingly from the same area now gone. Foggy points out as the viewer here, well, he could have been bagged and tagged. Yes, but there's no death certificate. She thinks this is her John Doe, their John Doe. But Foggy, just like he's come to grips with uh, what Matt is going through here, he's the voice of reason for Karen that she's got to let it go, that the trial is over. Though a conspiracy still might exist, it's somebody else's problems. There is no Nelson and Murdoch. Matt, he said it. One of the gifts that you get uh, doing a show for what I think we could lump together as the premium channels, whether it's uh, basic cable, premium cable, uh, Netflix, whatever it might be, is the time to let a scene like this happen. They don't need to hit us over the head, nor does Foggy need to hit Karen over the head with the desire to break the bad news to her. Meanwhile, she has, uh, courtesy of the writer's room, all these expositional things to cover and all this story to set up. And the two are able to coexist without it feeling like she's just rattling off stuff so they can go on the next fact-finding thing. Nor is Foggy's uh, emotional purpose in the scene trying to, uh, in a nonchalant way, get her to a point to sit her down and say, this is all done with. Oh, by the way, I, I think you're fired and I'd give you severance except we're broke. That is the scene at lunch that would have happened that never occurs. And it's just wonderful to see how both of these things can happen in the time they need to happen. And we're not up against the 42 minutes of uh, broadcast TV when you subtract commercials and things of that ilk. But this is foggy, though, and, and he's building her up at the same time that you're, you're really good at this stuff. Um, you know, though Matt might have other things to take care of. Um, you know, he, he cares about her and, and we had at least in the first season been walking a potential romantic path between the two of them. Um, but, uh, now with, with Matt incapable of worrying about anything else other than, uh, his outside activities, he's really kind of, uh, pushing her in another direction. Karen uh, mentions, by the way, that uh, you know when, when she saw Matt, who's not his best self, uh, that uh, Matt had a woman in his bed. She doesn't mention, you know, the other blind guy that was there. Just yeah. That, <laughs> if you're going to suggest Matt was there with a woman and they were having sexy times, can you mention the uh, the other guy who's there to yeah, just let that good. let that fit in? Whatever. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll I was going to say, I'll grant you, there really is no way. It's kind of, it's a slightly lazy moment of writing, but them's the breaks, I suppose. Um, I, I like that the conversation between the two of them essentially becomes this uh, this separated concern for a troubled friend. Uh, nonetheless, Foggy reiterates that it's time for both of them, Foggy and Karen, to focus on life outside the office. Matt, Stan Gibson is being escorted by his uh, not Yakuza hand handlers. And uh, the Daredevil suddenly gets those two guys right away to the point, Matt, where Stan gets a triple S word score, 102, 103, 104, and tries 
to uh, gun down the daredevil, but uh, he better not miss. Indeed, just a, a moment of heroic bravery as uh, Stan, who probably would not miss, uh, is, is talked down by Daredevil. And with that, Stan starts to babble. The hand corrupts all it touches. What are they planning? It's already being done. No, no, no. It's already done. It's all, Absolutely. Stan's not going to say much more because they have his son, Daniel. Stan, he's... It definitely isn't going to say too much, though. Bodyguards, they're not bodyguards. They're holding him hostage. His son is being held on a place called the farm, and Stan knows how to get there, but he's not going to say too much. <laughs> is he related, Pete, to Exposition Mahoney? Well, listen, I mean, New York is a is a city of 8 million souls, and sure, I, I, you know, there are a lot of people in there that exist not to tell us stories, but to move stories forward. Um, but uh, this this place, Matt, that he's not going to tell us about, uh, it, it, it's like a fortress. Uh, I, I like how the hand keeps things simple. Um, they just, they call it the hand. They call it the, the farm. There's kind of many, uh, many vivas. And- Does that make... Matt, the workers at the farm, farm hands. Um, I think yes, insofar as there also are our livestock in the basement. Um, you know what, Pete? If you're going to go for a metaphor, go for the metaphor. Even if you're a creepy, evil uh, organization from several, several hundred years ago, no one knows since how long. <laughs> Centuries. Uh, at the New York Bulletin, Matt, the headline screamed out from the wall, Cybertech settles. Felt like uh, it, it, it might be a nod, if not to the past, maybe to the future. Pete, was that the cybertech that helped John Garrett develop a powered suit that ended up in Deathlock's uh, hands on the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show? The same. It's all connected. But uh, editor here, uh, Ellison, he uh, wants to know, you know, how Karen Page has been doing in court. You guys had a had a hell of a day there. Um, did you bring me a T-shirt? There's the, the, the joking uh, side of the media. But um, she wants to show him her picks, Matt. She does, Pete. And luckily, it's all above board. Uh, she has all this information here to share with him. There's a quick recap of the missing John Doe, et cetera. Et cetera. Right. That wasn't in open court. So a little quick catch you up to speed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's made clear that this is the purview of the press, not Nelson Murdoch. Ellison does a quick rewind. Karen is handing this off like she's handing off a no-hitter in the eighth inning, Pete. She has a league of her own. She's in the league of her own. Anyhow, Ellison's phone has been ringing off the hook lately. Maybe not ringing off the hook. It's seven or eight calls. But she's shaking the right trees because, Pete, between a baseball metaphor and a tree-shaking metaphor, (laughs) you know what? Pete, it's almost like she's a pre-lawyer and a pre-journalist and has those degrees in the school of hard knocks. That's my metaphor. And I'm sure she knows how to use LexisNexis. But uh, it ain't over, Matt, till it's over. And um, she's pulling these strings here. And uh, he's going to pull some strings to find the address of Dr. Tepper. And he's going to talk to 
us, Matt, because uh, she shouldn't get cocky. She ain't that good yet. Back we go to prison. Oh, the times we've said that on Fantastic Geek Adventures out there in the wild. Anyhow, back we go to prison. Frank gets to A block. He's directed to cell 305. Pete, it's the room with a view. He's given seven minutes that it. It's like the name of the episode. Yeah. Frank walks <laughs> and quickly. And I check the time. Um, no, don't were, tell me it's actually seven minutes. That would be awesome. Pretty good to the time frame. Anytime that happens in uh, film or TV, I always try to pay attention to it to see how close they come. And there are times that, you know, the countdown to the bomb, which is only 60 seconds, takes like two minutes of <laughs> screen time. And there are other times that obviously they abridge it, which I think is a little bit more believable. But uh, they were they were pretty close, Matt. Well, it certainly is good to hear. Uh, Frank walks down that uh, that cell block quickly and with a purpose. The camera moves inside the cell. Dutton is counting money. His funky pretty quickly gets his throat slashed. It's yes. like uh, it, it's almost jarring to go from like, "No, Electra, why did you kill that young ninja boy who was going to kill us?" to Oh, right. This is the Punisher's season. Uh, but Frank wants to talk to Dutton. And Pete, in this moment of highest tension, we return to Daredevil and Stan on the farm. Stan is told to stay put. And that's basically it. Back to the other storyline, though, Pete. You as a, a a man of journalism, take it away from there. Well, Karen is outside room 274 in what seems like a hotel um and given the paranoid nature here of dr tepper the, the mayor made him resign he's uh he's seen people following him and ellison really kind of feeds into this as he he's not the best journalistic type um and and that's made abundantly clear throughout his arc thus far on the show but uh, Pete, it, it, look, it's the bulletin for a reason. OK, it, it is. It is. It is that, you know, that sixth paper running around New York. Um, I wouldn't clean my windows with it, but um, that, uh, you know, we're, we're heading into a situation where uh, once Karen's able to wear him down and get him to open the door, I think we can help you. I think you can help others um that we're we're feeding into this that you're a target because of what you know and karen has found something to thrust that truth into the light here's the the body and uh going back to what he knows about it that uh that you're not going to print any of this before you substantiate it uh of, of course you wouldn't <laughs> but um that there was no name Tucked inside his left shoe was a police call sign, a special code. Um, he wasn't a criminal. He wasn't a bystander. He was an undercover cop. And this is all happening while Frank has his shiv across the neck of uh, a blood bag. <laughs> Indeed, Karen being the light. Ah, oh, vampire ironies. Anyhow, uh, I like here how the two stories move in parallel motion here. Uh, learning more about the shootout that day from first the ME and then back to jail. 
Uh, Dutton is told he'll be cut open if he makes a noise. Did he set up the carousel massacre? Yes. Who made the order to shoot it? Dutton shares that it wasn't a massacre. It was a sting. The feds had infiltrated one of the groups, not sure which one. They were after the true head man, the new big bad in town, the blacksmith. Got a line on pure heroin, Matt. This stuff, 105, shipped straight from the Middle East. And um, I'm 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 concerned who the blacksmith might be. We will definitely return to that in our uh, theories segment a little later on. But um, given the the tone of this conversation, this is not really about getting down to answers so much as this is give me what you've got, and then that's the end of it. Pete Dutton uh, says that Frank's crusade, it will never end. It's just going to keep going on. Nope. I think Frank disagrees a little bit. He sticks him with the shiv. That's all for Dutton is what I have in my notes. Although uh, I mean, he shanks him with the shiv, Matt. The shiv is the uh, noun. Shank is the verb. I know my prison slang. Pete, this is why when we get into all sorts of trouble after New York Comic Con and the like, this is why I'm out quick and you're not. Anyhow, I thought that was all for Dutton. I guess that's a little premature. Um, Nonetheless, Frank walks to leave the block, but it turns out he's locked in, not just by that dirty double-crossing guard and the other guards watching, but great use of the space. A level up watching down through the, the, the mesh is Fisk, Mm -hmm. so it's clear that frank has been double crossed all the way to the top with that all the cell blocks open hey what's going on dutton is dead frank is about to be a dead man and this fight as far as like raw brutality might be might take the cake matt to this point um frank charges at them there are clubs which he uses to stab people. He is stabbed with at one point. There's bone snapping. There are knives, prison knives, of course. Uh, there is a prison axe, which even I've never seen. Uh, the, the punches here, the slow motion and, and, and the axe going into the guy's head in slow motion. Then eyes are gouged. And how about the guy who's coming at um, Frank finally with the knife uh, from a standing position, he's hit in the knees, falls, and he is stabbed in the neck. And then there's that overhead shot of all this blood all over the white-suited Frank Castle. And Matt, this is his first day inside. <laughs> well, when you put it like that, uh, the score is eight dead plus Dutton and his lieutenant, one live Frank. Have to mention, amidst all the uh, poetry of violence that you recapped, Pete, the use of what I can only assume is computer-generated blood splatter onto uh, the walls and things of that sort. Maybe it was done practically. If so, all the better. But just adds a layer there. We know that the actors aren't actually hitting each other to to a point where blood is flying on the walls. The fact that the show goes out of its way again, through either practical or, or uh, computer means to make that happen uh, is, is just, I, I feel like it's something I haven't seen before. I know there's been computer blood splatter on the walking dead. 
it just sold it in this space here. A space, by the way, Pete, we've had the kind of hallway that connects rooms in the first season. We've had a vertical hallway called a stairwell earlier on in this season. Now we have the hallway between uh, between cells that make up a cell block. You got to watch hallways here on Daredevil. Bad things happen. <laughs> But they don't happen indefinitely. Police, uh, or at least corrections officers uh, in riot gear come in. And I Rhythmically love... slapping yeah. the shields there. I, I was like, really? We're going we're, we're to go round two? Uh, all to gas Frank. A, a little bit of a taste of his own medicine, albeit not a handmade smoke grenade, to drag him out of there. And uh, we get dragged across town where Mr. Hirochi is uh, tasting a merchandise. Ooh, just, just a little bit. Um, he Not strong he- enough. Hi. Oh. <laughs> wow. Uh, he hears that Stan's bodyguards have been hit. With that, uh, Daredevil gets a hold of Mr. Hirochi while the flacky, who I thought was going to play a larger role in the scene, but does not. The flacky lowers his gun and watches as the boss says Daredevil can't stop what was started. Wait. Matt hears something bubbling in the basement. He's told that there's more than one devil that walks the streets. Hey, Pete, is that blood? It is blood indeed. But he called him Akuma-san. You know, I have not looked it up. And I would imagine it would mean devil. uh, In which case, wouldn't he be calling him Mr. Devil? (laughs) Uh, Pete, you, you always have to be respectful when talking to the devil. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Pete, we cut to the bulletin. Karen is fighting to hang on to the story. Allison knows that she won't let go. And Pete, she's offered use of an old office. Hey, it's that of Ben Urich. That's not bittersweet. We're shown the briefest of glimpses of a newspaper article that uh, Ben had found and uh, that Ben didn't care about, Ellison didn't care about. Pete, they must know in this age of HD that even with a really tight focus pull obscuring some of the text, we're going to pause. We're going to see how this article is about the death of a 16-year-old Kevin Page mm-hmm. auto accident. It brings Karen to tears, but she's going to power through that. Pete, she's going to be put to work. The photo of Ben and his wife in the background is a bit morose, but it's visually interesting. Which is interesting because when we go back to prison, there's more visually interesting things in the mesh roof. Yeah, this octagonal room that that Castle is in and uh, when Fisk comes in, um, backed up by these guards that he quickly explained he's doubled their cut. And the, the plan was originally to have you killed, but plans change. Um, you know, with with Dutton out of the picture here, uh, that Castle has this gift and he should embrace it. And then you just get into this fight that whereas the the brutality of the the hallway fight, and I'm going to specify which hallway, the prison hallway <laughs> fight so people don't go, wait, the dog's a hell hallway uh, earlier this season, the, the one-shot hallway with the Russians from from uh, the first season. No, the, the earlier uh, hallway scene in this episode, then we just get into this savage mano a mano pounding on one another here. Of course, the bigger man prevailing with Fisk, but it all comes down that he's going to release him here, that 
uh, he, he's in control and now he's going to set him free um, because prison, though it's as inhuman an environment as Fisk's ever known, he finds it refreshing and um, that this city is uh, ready to be taken. He even points out that when he's finally let out, it won't be to wage a war. It'll be to win one. You know, very, very loaded line. It is. And a bit earlier in the scene when the two were exchanging blows, here the tenor of Fisk's body power, it's spot on. It's not the the superhuman terror of the comics, but he's clearly just has this... this um, I, I would say borderline extra human strength to him. Uh, just, just really a fine line that they walk and wonderfully done. Um, in the scene, though, Fisk tells Frank, go find the blacksmith, find justice, kill for justice. Kill your and way to justice. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's um, just a wonderful springboard for the the episodes ahead of us, the four episodes ahead uh fisk is leaving and frank tells him that the next time they meet only one of them walks away though fisk is counting on it i had to gasp pete i can't imagine either character not being around uh though that does seem to be what they're setting up and with that pete back we go to the farm daredevil and mr hirochi are descending the stairs at the bottom is someone there? Yes, someone. There's a cage, nay, a series of cages, people being drained of their blood. It's being pooled in a tank. Um, with also, that... first visible here, the gigantic urn that the tubes are going into. Yeah, it's presented in a way where y- you see it, but its its exact relationship to everything else isn't clear. Then it kind of becomes clear as the scene uh, unfolds. Stan comes in. He finds his son. That leads Matt to finding the keys. Pete, we're getting ready for a nice happy ending here. Then the stars start coming. Those were knives thudding. Um, And the ninja tells him here that they were not finished. Um, No time like that to go back to the big box prison. uh, And Dutton awakes, who we did not expect to see again and uh there's fisk bedside enjoying a meal chowing uh, down yeah letting him know that uh the the doctors have told me that uh your lungs are filling with liquid and you're gonna suffocate uh on the blood but you're not alone uh you're right there's only room in here for one kingpin matt he said the thing he said the thing and he said the thing and it was amazing yeah um outside the prison riot gear guards exit with frank castle in the rear he gets into a car and he's out um, can we at least make a little bit more of an attempt to sell him in the riot gear shield make it like tinted or something like hey who's that poor guy that got beat to hell walking out of prison he just takes it off and gets right in the suv a fair point i think the visual medium of tv won out in that we needed to be really clear that it wasn't just joey guard going home for the day because his wife's picking him up but it's you know frank castle on the run back to the farm we go matt and the ninja who I kept saying to myself, this guy looks a little familiar. No, I must be wrong. Then you um, see the weapon, Matt. You see yes. that uh, 
that chained weapon we've seen before. And uh, he tells him, uh, you know, you, you, you still have scars to remember me by, I hope. So now, wait, he's met this guy before. He slashes the, uh, the tubes connected. He moves the urn into um, the elevator here. And the hood comes off. Wait, you're dead. There is no such thing. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Matt, we begin with Wilson Fisk. How can you not? This lengthy teaser act bringing us up to speed. Uh, I, I was gleeful that he was in the credits, returned to the credits. Um, I suppose they could do it just for an episode or two, not, not, not knowing at the title sequence what his fate would be even through this episode, but all is well in the world to have his particular brand of badness back is wonderful indeed. And, uh, it, it's just, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio brings a level of acting that is just on, on, on another planet compared to the, the wonderful actors around him. He was such a presence in the first season before we had even met the character and to take him away, to have him mentioned a bunch of times this season to get that uh, cameo at the end of the um, the previous episode. And, and now to essentially get the, the backstory, the, the time filling us in between uh, when we saw him last in this episode is is just utter gravy and it's it's done largely so well um it it can't be easy to get d'onofrio i mean listen if they're smart he's somebody that the defenders once united will will come up against um and and let's not pretend that marvel doesn't have a plan um but at the same time you know this is a guy who granted he filmed jurassic world before he did the first season of Daredevil, but shaves his head down. You know, you would imagine the guy had grown his hair back and then shaves it back down again to to do the episodes here. You know, the, the commitment required from this, this actor, which comes across in his performance, um, has to be recognized. Absolutely. Welcome back, Wilson. I mean, y- y- you speak of the commitment there, Pete. He's much thinner in Jurassic World, so if he's put this weight on, I'm sure he's you know quick to say, "Oh, and uh, part of my fee, I want you to pay for a trainer for you know six months to get the weight off again." But now he's going back to Daredevil, doing more. Um, but all that behind-the-scenes stuff melts away with this character who just just demands attention from the camera while while still acting dignified in prison and i'm just so happy that he's back and in such a such a big way also melting away uh throughout the course of this episode is uh mr dutton we meet him first you know at the at the apex of the big box prison and uh you know watch him uh dwindle away while uh wilson fisks and enjoys the finest meal the prison has to offer Pete, it's a reminder to all our listeners when you are in charge of 80% of the, the, the racket in the slammer and you're making the sweet, sweet Benjis, enjoy it while it lasts. The faster you go up, 
is even the faster you go down again. I enjoyed the character in the way he had these flourishes that he shows up in, in Fisk's cell with his, his one uh, Jesus looking lackey. And then, um, you know, just the, the audacity in the mess hall of, of laughing louder and longer than everybody else. And um, kind of the way they cast, uh, Fisk from afar in that first season, but albeit in a more enclosed environment that he's got a grip on everything. And sure, we know that Fisk will come out on top and, and, and beat him. But to see him do it, there's a there's a certain satisfaction in that. This this guy's never likable. There's there's a sad empathy that we have for Wilson Fisk given what we know of his backstory, given the, the stuff we saw happen with the father and, and the, the mom in the upstate facility, you, you're never going to justify what he's done. But there's none of that with, with Dutton. This is a guy who, you know, he'll make the deal with whoever. He's smart enough to know this is a sting, da-da-da-da. And, um, you know, to, to, to see him uh, breathing his last there, that's the satisfaction we get with that character. It is a part of the, the embarrassment of riches that uh, the show was able to get actor William Forsythe for this role. Uh, I mean, he's been in Raising Arizona. Dick Tracy jumps out at me. Uh, certainly no stranger to mob roles. Boardwalk Empire, Justified, The Untouchables, playing Al Capone himself just brought with him even if you didn't kind of recognize him as oh he's played a baddie before just brings a, a certain uh gravitas and i think it's a great observation pete that he's kind of like a mini um a, a mini fisk in a lot of ways uh story ways and they're kind of able to tap into that and tap into what the actor brings to just give you the lowdown on this guy quickly and then lastly nobu second episode in a row where we've had this twist of bringing somebody back. We didn't think we were going to see Fisk. We could have said, all right, he's out there. He's floating around, but a character who's dead, Matt. Hey, here I thought dead was dead. I guess not. Uh, it, it was foretold to us that, uh, that such things were possible, but uh, nice to, nice to see him back. And uh, certainly more potential for future episodes that, uh, Old Nobu, the ever-living, the never-dead, will uh, will be causing more trouble. I like that they acknowledge whatever has gone on with him, that he is scarred. Um, he, he's He's got the ninja garb on, but he's also got kind of like a casual businessman thing happening. You know, he's got this long waistcoat going. Um, so it, it was an interesting presentation at the end of this episode apart from oh yeah i'm gonna take this thing that all the blood is uh going into and i'm going down you know not to hell uh probably to the hole yeah just really really loaded stuff and to 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 get a not as big a bad as fisk but to get a a fairly big bad back uh, in this second season just continues to to complicate things and to raise stakes. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? 
It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Matt, Fisk, early release with everything that he's done possible? Well, I mean, once the lawyers get involved, I guess I guess it is possible, um, particularly if the story requires it. Um, it is tough to imagine, though, but we've heard of such things in, in the real world, or, or in our world anyway. Maybe, maybe they're watching, maybe the Marvel people read comics about us, Pete, I don't know, but, but I digress. Um, it, it wouldn't be impossible that it's one of these big arrests with lots of lights and success, says prosecutor's office, and then six months, a year, two years later, whatever the time frame is, uh, it just kind of all melts away. So, again, it's possible. I mean, if the characters are incredulous, it was a million to one odds that he would get out, and he did, then you can kind of have your story cake and eat it too. The blacksmith. And we have another blacksmith on this show in Melvin Potter. The same? Oh, man, Pete, don't. Don't even float that in your spoilery existence. I cannot imagine that the sweethearted Melvin Potter, who 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 still gives us uh, outfits and mysteries, the idea that he's a big bad. I mean, with the blacksmith, we are we are going over slightly familiar writerly territory in that it's kind of like his his badness is foretold ahead of his arrival. Uh, just as Fisk was last season, um, I am thoroughly enthralled with the idea that there's a there's a bad guy or a bad gal out there that I have no idea where we're headed with it. Maybe I'm you know maybe I'm showing my lack of having read the comics, but uh, I'm I, I I don't know. It's all question marks, but good question marks when it comes to the blacksmith. The police code was found in the foot of the John Doe. Could the code have been the blacksmith? That's possible too, I suppose. It it astonishes me that with last season of Daredevil, there was the slower pace, and I feel that there was also um, a bit more of um, whatever the opposite of a race to the finish would be. It was like we're gonna we're gonna hold out on the suit reveal. We're gonna hold out on the Fisk Daredevil showdown until the very the very end of things. Um, in Jessica Jones, then the first season of that, we saw a different pace where things are just rocketing along. And I feel that that aesthetic has carried over here. In the remaining four episodes, we have more. I don't know if resolution, but we have more to do with the blacksmith with Fisk. With uh, with Nelson and Murdoch and Paige and and all of this has a mere four episodes to wrap up in. How about the rising? Obviously, we have the rising of uh, from the dead of of Nobu. Um, are they one and the same? Are they different? What do you make of that? I doubt that Nobu is using this vessel himself. I think he's more a protector of it. The idea of the undead ninjas uh, was floated by Elektra a couple episodes ago. So I don't think that it's this one-to-one relationship. If we don't get more of this mystery uh, explained to us this season, I will be a bit disappointed. We had better see inside that vessel, see whatever horrible thing is inside it. 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do with the tease last season of the kid in the shipping container and, and is this magic, is this mysticism, is this science? Give me some payoff here in the next four episodes. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, first up, a message left on our listener line from an old friend. Let's hear what he has to say. Good morning, Matt and Pete. Bob Frost from Michigan here. Concerning Daredevil, episode 208, Guilty as Sin, um, while there's a lot of aspects of this episode that are worthy of discussion, I wanted to address just one small point. Um, You were discussing whether or not Dick has his senses diminishing. Uh, Specifically, I'd like to speak about the scene that is right after Stick had MacGyvered up his toilet bowl cure. Matt had fallen to his knees at bedside and was desperately praying the Our Father. Stick then says something like, Maddie, use that hearing of yours. I don't get the impression that Stick couldn't hear Electra's heartbeat, that his senses were diminished. I got the impression it was more to help Matt. Specifically, um, it got him to do something to get him out of that paralytic depression that he was falling into before it spiraled out of control into like a full-blown panic. If we look at it in that light, when he says, Maddie, use that hearing of yours, he gets Matt to realize, all on his own, that Electra's condition is stabilized because now Matt replies with something to the effect of steady, her heartbeat is steady, and visibly begins to calm down. Now, certainly there are other things that uh, can support the question of whether or not Stick has his senses being diminished, that he may not be quite the warrior that he once was, but I think in this specific instance for this scene, he was just pulling back Matt from the brink of his despair, out of the pit of his despair, if you don't mind a uh, pun for uh, Princess Bride. Anyway, just a quick thought on that. As always, keep up the great work. By far, Fantastic Geek is the best Marvel podcast going. And I look forward to hearing much, much more throughout the season. Thank you and have a great day. Well, Bob, you have made our day, not only with your kind words, but uh, some really uh, insightful uh, analysis there. I think it's it's more than possible, uh, nay, likely that, uh, that your take is the way to go here, that stick is not diminishing but rather uh being a bit paternal over the uh the upset matty i mean first uh thank you bob for the for the praise and and you know we're we're so thankful for our listeners and uh you know the the feedback we get from you and 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 just that you join us for this thing that we do i think it is certainly uh possible if not the case that uh stick is walking him back uh from his pit of despair. I, I, I like the phrase and applies even more given what the, the hand seems to be doing in, in Manhattan right now at, at Midland Circle. Um, but I think it's like you acknowledge there, there is a case of 
him not quite being on top of his game just in terms of, and obviously he's in a, a foreign environment, uh, you know, where's the baking soda? It's in the fridge, that kind of thing. They were preoccupied with, uh, with bringing Electra, you know, back from the brink. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's the type of thing where you can have that mystery. And, and when we throw those theories out, it, it's never done in, in such a way that, um, you know, we're, we're going to be definitive. We, we want people thinking about it. And I think that's part of the writer's room discussion. Hey, when we have him say this, um, is, is there more than one meaning that it can be interpreted in? Well, that's the, that's the definition of, uh, of great art, isn't it? And I, I don't know that, I don't know that we spend a lot of time pondering if, uh, Marvel's daredevil TV show is, is high art, but the fact that there are these different takes, these different interpretations, uh, as pointed out by Bob, uh, certainly speaks to the, the high quality of the, uh, the production. He had also written in, Bob did, uh, to our Facebook page, uh, referencing that he's been a police officer for 26 years and that uh, point that he uh, answers for us really, too, is one that he can't think of a judge that would allow signs um, into a courtroom on top of the fact that uh, Castle would... um, uh, would be in the courtroom in a jumpsuit, uh, nothing that would uh, make him already considered uh, guilty in the eyes of the jury. So good points there from uh, Bob Robert T. Frost on the Facebook. Thanks again, Bob, for, uh, for your interactions with us, the time, the time you spend, the wisdom you share. And Pete, speaking of sharing, I want to take a moment to thank those who have uh, shared in a different way on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, helping with the uh, the techity tech podcast costs that uh, that uh, are part of the behind the scenes to make this fantastic geek thing go. We have the greatest listeners and uh, fans here of our, our podcasts and, and just so that people would even go there, let alone consider um you know, donating to what we do here is a a wonderful feeling. So thanks again. And, uh, you know, we're constantly, uh, looking to put new things up there. So, uh, you know, if, if you would check it once in a while and if you can reach into your pockets even better. Pete, lots of rewards there. Also though, some would argue that the greatest reward is interacting with you on Twitter. How can the people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 7,561 followers. Can't be wrong. While I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways. We are a fantastic geek. That is fantastic with a PH. We're under that name on the dot com, the Gmail, the Instagram, and the Twitter, and more, Pete. How did old Bob Frost do it? Facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek, all one word with the PH. You click the little thumbs up and we'll always be with you. Pete, if the listeners, because not you, because you're listening now, but if the listeners would like to hear more of what we do, don't forget that the Pop Culture Podcast will have uh, not just new episodes of our Daredevil podcast, as well as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Pete, we're getting into summer movie season. I've heard foretell there's apparently a, a comic book movie where things aren't all 
uh, just sad all the time. Something with the Captain America, Pete? They'll keep it civil, Matt. <laughs> Good to hear. So that's always the home base for a whole bunch of stuff, the Pop Culture Podcast. Pete will be uh, looking ahead before too long for our mysterious summertime podcasting project. Before you know it, we'll be uh, previewing Luke Cage. That has its own podcast feed, too. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are Fantastic Geek. Uh, you can get us on iTunes. You can go to fantasticgeek.com to find links to all the feeds. If, uh, if you're not an Apple kind of person... Regardless, thank you to everyone who listens, whether it's just Daredevil or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent Carter, Jessica Jones, and the rest. But now, Pete, it's time for me to say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Those you cannot teach to fly, teach to fall faster. Ooh.